This is the Macworld Podcast, episode 564 for June 21st, 2017. Folks, welcome back to the Macworld Podcast. I'm Glenn Fleischman, a senior contributor at Macworld. And the sound you hear is some minor construction happening in my house. You may hear a little bit of that intermittently throughout the podcast, but we'll try to to prevent it. We have a little house repair going on. Uh, Roman Loyola, <laughs> senior editor at Macworld. Any uh, construction work happening in your building? I don't. Well, we did have like this hissing sound that was happening, <laughs> and it was like. And the thing was, it's been hot here in San Francisco, surprisingly. So um, the hit. The, what they did was one of the server rooms. They readjusted the cooling. And for some reason, the air passing, you know, passing in the tubes above us, and the whatever, uh, there was a leak in one of the tubes. And it was just happened to be right, like, really close to my desk. So there was this constant hissing noise. So it wasn't the snakes that they put in the conduits. It was actually the air. <laughs> no, there were no, no, no freaking snakes on this freaking plane or whatever. That's right. Well, but, uh, they finally fixed it yesterday, so... So it's weird to be working in silence. They had to send tiny, tiny people into the tubes, to the Jeffries tubes, to figure out what's going on. Yes. I was actually I was listening to a uh, podcast with uh, Merlin Mann, Max Temkin, and Alex Cox called Do By Friday, which is very profane and very funny. And uh, they talk about all kinds of stuff about um, – they set challenges. And they were talking about professions for the future. And there's like a test you can take on some site that looked at uh, – the New York Times? or I forgot where were they. It examines whether your task can be replaced easily by robots in the future or, or AI. And um, one of the parameters was, uh, does your job involve crawling into confined spaces, basically, tiny spaces? <laughs> and I was like, are squeezing into small spaces? Like, if so, you're highly at risk for a robot replacing you. So far, journalism, podcasting, not too much. I'm in a big space right now. You can probably hear the echo. <laughs> uh, we got a bunch of follow-up from last week. Uh, and, and like I say, folks, we may have some construction noises. I'll try to minimize those. But uh, uh, so follow-up. So Tim Cook, uh, this is um, a little bit of a follow-up from talking about um, – I think uh, you know, after WWDC, there was a big Trump administration uh, confab with a bunch of tech leaders looking very uncomfortable, surprisingly uncomfortable. And one of the things Tim Cook said is that um, he is urging that coding become a routine part of the curriculum in schools. And, and we've heard this from other tech leaders before, and it's not uniformly uh, believed that that's a good idea. Um, there's that issue of like, you know, we used to have typing classes when I was uh, in high school. Typing, I think, was just starting to be phased out as like a mandatory thing, or maybe it had, but you could take it when your know, computer class was replacing it. And um, it gets into that whole like, is school teaching you how to think? Is it teaching you a skill? We need people with skills. That's probably more of the economy than people who sit at computers and tap away. We just don't like to talk about that, right? Um, I've got two extremely skilled craftspeople outside building a staircase that we had to get torn down. So uh, I always appreciate people with skills because uh, I don't have as many. <laughs> so uh, there's uh, both sides. But so coding, but coding is a, some people see it as a way to expand people's minds, give them access to more job potential, and also, you know, it's all around benefit. So interesting thing for them to bring up in terms of a national discussion. Yeah, Apple today announced their uh, summer camp programs and their, in their Apple stores. Oh, yeah. So they have Apple Camp and – uh, they have this new kids hour uh, for the Today at Apple programs that are at the Apple stores. And uh, a couple of the programs that they're emphasizing are coding and using Swift, Swift Playgrounds. Uh, so these programs are, I think they're more in the range of 6 to 12-year-olds. And they're not full-day programs. They're like 
uh, the Apple Camp programs are only ninety minutes long, and the parents and have to be there too. Do I remember that right? That you can't yes. like dump your kids. So this is not hey, dump your kids in the Apple Store all day. Uh, yeah, I know people used to work at Barnes and Noble, and man, did they get mad when they talked about how parents would just basically drop off sometimes quite small children, like in the children's section, and just go off for a few hours and shop and do whatever. And it was like you know, um, we're really not childcare. We're not trained, and the kids, you know, it's not really what it's for. Yeah, so yeah, these aren't the typical, you know, day camps that you think of and you know, to call it a camp to me feels like a little bit of a misnomer cuz it's really just you're only there for a short amount of time. It's like a workshop is more accurate. Right. But. Right. But I mean Apple are is offering these programs they're free uh, you know, and if you want to get your kid off to uh thinking about coding this is one way you can do it and it's in a friendly environment and you don't even have to bring your own ipad they will provide an ipad if you don't have one you don't get to keep it but uh you get to use one while you're there and uh there will be geniuses there to help you out so uh you know it's a step in that they have other programs too like i think you can uh they have an iMovie program so you can learn how to use iMovie to make a video and I believe there's a garage band one too, so, so you can make a song. So uh, it sounds like a little, lot of fun. That's but, good. Yeah. yeah I think, I mean, I'll go do that. I'll dress up as a kid and go. Yeah. <laughs> take <over> the classes. <laughs> kids' programs, like, I, you know, it's the thing you get, send your kids off to camp, day camp or whatever, and overnight you're like, God, why am I not? This is what I'd like to be doing with myself right now. Yeah. Yeah. So we had a bunch of like little follow up. Some of it's, I, I'm putting it all under follow up, and some of it's sort of news, but it's things we've talked about a lot. So uh, Apple Music, for instance, just one little item Apple Music is now offering a yearly subscription for 100 bucks or $99, which saves $20 a year. Some people like to pay it once. Um, I know from running a publication with a monthly subscription on the App Store that uh, one thing that drives people around the bend is getting a reminder every month they're about to be billed a fee. And um, I think Apple, I have to believe they track sentiment about stuff like this. Um, and being able to um, pay once and not be reminded for 12 months, people sometimes don't care that they're not using it as much. <laughs> like they might not even have needed it for the full year, but the fact that they don't have to get a, like literally getting a piece of email that just says, hey, you're about to be charged 10 bucks or three bucks or whatever is really irritating to a surprisingly large number of people. Yeah. Uh I have to admit, I don't use Apple Music. <laughs> I don't either. I've got an Amazon Unlimited subscription because I didn't find Apple Music useful enough. And then I used um, – this is how Amazon sucks you in. I used Amazon uh, Prime has a free selection. Amazon Prime has music in it as well. It's a subset of their Unlimited collection. So I got all the music I bought from Amazon. I have all the stuff that I've ripped from CDs that I own and all the music I bought from Apple in un you know protected formats and that – that prime collection. And so, uh, but I started to see things like, you know, God, if I paid Amazon this relatively, I can't remember what it costs. It's less than Apple's fee. Um, I can do the Amazon unlimited. And I thought this integrates better with what I'm doing. So they kind of got me, they made me jump up a notch instead of, uh, instead of going to the Apple world. I'm a cheapskate and I use spot. I use a free account on Spotify. So I, cause I'm cheap. <laughs> I'm pretty I'm cheap, cheap but I found myself needing um oh yeah, prime members spend eight bucks a month and non prime it's ten, so I'm saving, you know, a couple bucks a month. Um I'm pretty cheap about subscription things and right now there's actually this is the thing with T V and music and so forth. I'm kind of subscribed to way too many things at the moment and then I'm gonna I'm gonna back off. 
Um, oh, I wanted to readdress too something from last week. Oh, folks, we're going to get to. I should just. Uh, I like to give you a little roadmap of the episode so you know what to listen for uh, later. After we do our follow up and kind of new stuff, we're going to talk about uh, the MacBook Pro, which Roman reviewed the uh, the new models. Um, we'll talk about that in just a moment, and um, let's get through some of this other um, intermediate stuff and some some news and some information we've discovered. Um, sorry, I'd like to let you know what's coming. So if you want to fast, feel free to fast forward. You can find us later. Uh, image format. So I was stumbling over the whole HEIC uh, format, uh, uh, HEIF rather format, the uh, HIF, um, which uh, my friend Michael Cohen suggested is pronounced GIF, which I thought was a good joke. Um, <laughs> HEIF, high efficiency image file format. I was confused about it because I felt like I was hearing two different messages. And when I went to research it, I felt like uh, because Apple had announced it, it flooded all the other information out. Now things have rebalanced a little bit. And I understand it uh, better. Hyfe is a standard, but there's a lot of variability about what you implement within the standard. So it's an ISO standard. And the reason it felt to me like it came out of nowhere, like, you know, I'm not like a super standards person, but I'm always reading about image formats and uh, the rest. I didn't know anybody who had heard about Hyfe. The first version was approved in 2015, the spec, um, and it wasn't as fully fledged. The, the second version is, is in pre-release, like it's, you know, not a product, but they're about to finalize and release that standard. Um, and I was looking at Apple's slides uh, from the presentation on the format. So Apple is basing its hype on this more advanced, uh, more complete spec that is not yet out, basically. Um, although everybody in the industry is aware of it and is preparing around it. Um, but the reason that people uh, uh, like companies like Apple are so excited about it is hype isn't just higher compression. That's one option. You can do um, hype lets you package stuff into an image file. So you can have multiple images. They can be in different formats. So there can be a, um, uh, for one suggestion was a highly compressed JPEG preview that might be super compressed, but used just for instant display on anything. And then the full resolution, um, you know, uh, compression, whatever they're using for that inside of the package for that. Um, but the app will be able to put diffs in like the difference between images. If you do modifications, I believe they'll be packaging live photos inside it. Um, Hyph lets uh, developers use um, timed images, sequences of things. It's really a pretty uh, sophisticated format. So it makes sense that they're moving towards that for the future. So it's not just compression. It's more like a, a super package for um, handling imaging. And, uh, and uh, that's the scoop. Uh, so, uh, Roman, you just updated uh, another bit of update uh, here, follow-up, is uh, Thunderbolt 3. We've been waiting for docs and other stuff to appear, and it's been, you know, Thunderbolt 3 has been out for a bit, and it's really, uh, Apple only adopted it uh, several months ago. I think we're, what, in the ninth month? And um, it sometimes has a long cycle for stuff to show up. We saw that with USB-C, that it took really a year before stuff really showed up. Um, are you starting to see, uh, uh, you just updated your guide at Macworld.com. Are you starting to see more interesting Thunderbolt 3 accessories appear? Yeah, we're starting to see more Thunderbolt docks in particular. So uh, I know Kensington's coming out with one. Uh, OWC has one. Uh, there are uh, several other companies that uh, uh, Cal CalDigit uh, has one. So there there are a lot of the companies that had released Thunderbolt 2 docks are following up with Thunderbolt 3 docks. So um, – I'm planning to get a bunch of them in and do a uh, roundup review, kind of like I, what I did with the Thunderbolt 2 docks. So um, hopefully that'll be coming to Macworld sooner than later uh, as, as the products come in. A lot of them has just started shipping. Uh, and you're right. It, it, it's it's weird how it it takes a cycle or two or 
for these products to come out. I don't know if it's because they don't uh, they can't really do anything until the 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 spec and the implementation becomes live on Apple Gear or what. I I, I uh, that's something I'll, I'll ask the vendors why it, it takes why there's a delay sometimes. I have to believe there's some kind of peripheral chipset issue too that like you have yeah. to you know for things like this USB C. You didn't have to license a controller from any given party. It's kind of a, and they have patent pools and things like that. And, uh, but there were certain chip makers making controllers. And I think that companies were waiting for certain, like, low cost USB C controllers to appear for Thunderbolt 3, if I understand it, Intel controls the spec more. So I assume, uh, it has more of a say in how those chips are released or who's making them. I mean, I assume, I, I mean, this is all assumption because, I don't know the world of controller trips uh, <laughs> that well. Uh, and we know that some of the issues of Thunderbolt 3 shipping later, or um, well, there are, there are interrelated issues with the uh, 2016 MacBook Pros about uh, generations of uh, controller chips and other things that were going on. Um, the, the original 2015 MacBook and even the 2016 MacBook, I think there was a, a one reason it had uh, one port, I think was because of a controller limitation or something. There's, it's a little hazy because we heard rumors and they were never confirmed about why. And the tw- the 2017 MacBook still has a single port, so it's become a design decision. Uh, I'm using a 2015 MacBook as we speak. Um, have you seen uh, the the big thing will be uh, with Thunderbolt three for super high performance is going to be people who want to put in you know multiple 5K monitors um, over Thunderbolt three or um, use the 40 gigabit per second mode, um, which is pretty astonishing for um, the, which is like the raw, it's, um, I think it's PCI express encapsulated <laughs> or something like that, that lets them do 40 gigabit per second symmetrical connections over Thunderbolt three, but ostensibly you got to find a raid or, or something out there. That's going to support anything like that speed. I mean, the previous rate was 20 gigabits per second. And I know in the video and animation, other worlds, they really uh, want that kind of super high performance uh, writing and reading ability. Yeah, I haven't seen anything like that. I, you know, so far, I think the the uh, main device that I've seen that tries to take advantage of the bandwidth as much as possible are these uh, external boxes that you can use for oh, yeah. for graphics cards. That's super cool. So, and I haven't had a chance to take a look at any of those, but I that to me is pretty exciting because that's you know it's it's pretty geeky and you know it's. It's something that you kind of don't normally associate with Macintoshes. This kind of idea, yeah. That, you know what I mean? It's it's a not weird really external a box, right? Right, but you know, it's sort of a uh, a way to get around the internal limitations that Apple puts on it on their machines. So yeah, it's that that's basically the the external graphics card uh, graphics card in the boxes. There are a couple boxes I can't remember the name of the vendors who put them out now that you can use. I, uh, di- I dig that too, though, because that means if you bought a Mac, it kind of future-proofs your MacBook uh, Pro. You bought a 2016 one or a 2017 one, and you you don't have a Mac Pro, but you can plug in an external GPU. Yeah, and the idea that you can use this beefy GeForce card that's out, you know, that's you know, it's like a $500, $600 card. And the idea that you can use that on your MacBook is a little mind-boggling to me. It does seem very uh, non-Mac. I don't know why. There's something about if it doesn't fit inside the Mac and it's not like a printer or a scanner or a hard drive, then you know it doesn't exist. But um, it, it just seems like – it seems wonderful because there's a lot of people whose frustration at not being able to put in high-performance GPUs. You know, and the, this, this gives people a pathway with like the iMac, the new iMacs as well. So they've got USB uh, – I'm sorry, the – 
the new iMacs have uh, Thunderbolt three also, right? Or do yes. you have USB C? I'm losing track of this. The problem with multiple standards, right? Yeah. So um, yeah, because Apple talked about uh, during their High Sierra uh, presentation at WWDC, they talked about the external graphics support. That was that was kind of a feature that they kind of highlighted. It was a little surprising, as like you said, it's it's not typically an Apple type of thing to think think out of the box, so to speak. I well, guess. it's just weird for them to say, we made this great computer, and by the way, here's another thing you could plug into it that makes it better. It's right. very, unless it's a monitor. I mean, it's, they love peripherals. They don't love computing things. Yeah, so the, the uh, iMacs come with, the 21-inch iMac has two USB or C slash Thunderbolt 3 ports. Right. And it's the twenty-seven inch. Or- I think it has. Does it have three? I know it's hard. It also to- has two. It, it has two. Oh, they're gonna, but they have. They also have Type A USB three, Type A right. ports as well. Right. right? So you'll and, still be able to the- plug all your existing stuff in, but you can put in a USB C hub or a Thunderbolt right. 3 hub. And I think that it's the iMac Pro that has like four of them. If I oh, believe. Right. right. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And that's not shipping till later in the year. Yeah. It has four Thunderbolt three ports. Yeah. Yeah. The specs, yeah. there's so many specs uh, these days, but yeah, I mean, I'm loving that Thunderbolt three is becoming this established thing because I've been kind of, I've been hip on USB-C for a while. As you know, I was an early person being excited about it despite all the downsides. And I'm like, Thunderbolt three, yay, it's the future because painful transition but when you're done you have one kind of cable everything plugs into it it's symmetrical carries power both directions super high data rate and there's tiers of backwards compatibility right you've got thunderbolt 3 is like one tier for super fast speeds but almost everything else is supported with just the regular sort of USB-C standards yeah it's pretty cool so uh Let's see, moving on, another bit of follow-up. Uh, we talked about this thing. I talked about this with Susie weeks ago, is that Apple had, um, and I wrote a private eye column about it, Apple uh, announced uh, several weeks ago that they were going to no longer allow third-party apps to access calendars, contacts, and um, mail, from, uh, non-Apple apps, right? So your mail pro, this doesn't include like Apple Mail on macOS or mail on your iPhone, obviously, and iOS, um, you'd have to enable two-factor authentication, the newer system that Apple rolled out a couple years ago on your Apple ID, and generate app-specific passwords for calendar contacts and email. And they said, June 15th, it's going to happen. They gave some warning. All the companies like Fantastical and uh, BusyMac and so forth tried to educate their users. They're not totally happy about it because they'd prefer OAuth, which is what Google uses and a lot of other companies use, and it's a little more straightforward. June 15th has come and gone. And so I'm starting to get email from people who say, uh, hey, uh, I can't um, connect to service X or, oh my gosh, I never got 2FA working and what do I do? So um, we've got instructions at macworld.com how to do that. Folks listening to this podcast, I assume you were already up to speed on it because, you know, you're listening to a podcast about Apple stuff. You probably already are uh, up and working on this. I, my wife had a problem with it because um, she hadn't enabled 2FA, so we had to get that going. And she only has one thing she uses it with, so she'd put it off. She got in the email, and then the other day, she's like, look, I can't get my calendars to sync. I'm like, oh, yeah. Um, so we all got it. We got it all working. But I got an interesting email from somebody uh, just a couple days ago to the Mac 911 address, which is Mac 911 at macworld.com, folks who have questions about Apple stuff. Um, and they said, uh, I'm a Windows user. I don't have any Apple devices. How am I going to upgrade a 2FA and use it so I can access my iCloud email? And I thought, you poor sucker. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) 
No. And what I suggested, I said, look, you know, you don't actually need it. The way Apple's kind of split up 2FA. So you have to have an iOS or a device or a Mac to enable 2FA. But once you have it enabled, you can do it entirely with SMS and web browser-based stuff. Um, and same thing with email. So I said, look, find a friendly person with a Mac who would let you set up an account. And the only thing on the account on that Mac is going to be is basically you're going to log into your Apple ID. You're going to enable 2FA and you're going to set multiple phone numbers, set your own number as a trusted device, of course, um, and set that Mac as a trusted device. So you may have to one day get back to that Mac to make changes uh, and set, find a friend, a family member, whatever, whose phone can be a backup phone for you because you can set multiple trusted phones. So in case you lose your phone or your phone number's taken away from you for some reason or someone hijacks it, you can still get access. And then uh, you can use Apple ID.apple.com is the only place you can set app specific passwords. So when you log in there, it'll, it can send, you can go to Apple ID.apple.com and it will uh, send the uh, confirmation code. You'll, it'll try to send it to a Mac or iOS device, but then there's like, didn't get code. You click that and then you can say, send it to this phone number. That's one of the ones you've programmed in. So uh, you can use it, but you do have to have access. And I would say Mac is easier because you can set up a separate account. iOS is much harder because you kind of need to control the device at least briefly. I kind of feel like Apple dropped the ball on this because it doesn't feel like there was enough. Uh, they didn't publicize this change enough. You know, we, we covered it and it doesn't seem like anybody else really covered it, but it's kind of a big deal. And I didn't see a lot of uh, developers, even third party developers bringing up, but. Oh, our friends at yeah, BusyMac yeah, did. Yeah. They were, uh, did they, they? And, yeah, and Fantastical, actually. I think they may have pushed an update out, and the update simply warned people about changing, making sure they were where they needed to change. Uh, it gave a dialogue box that said, look, you're going to have to do this if you haven't already by this date, or it'll stop working. It's a huge customer service burden for you know any developer of calendar software, contact software, or email software that has Mac users or iOS users, people with Apple ID accounts, um, iCloud accounts. So yeah, so it's, it's happened. I'm surprised I haven't gotten more email, but I gotten a few messages from people. And I think there's, it's just explicable, just explicable enough. People figure it out. But, uh, I wrote a little bit ago about, um, OAuth, which is, um, was mentioned just a moment ago, which is where you basically a login window from the site that you're working with. So you're using Fantastical or whatever, BusyCal, and it pops up, you know, you're like, all right, I want to connect to my iCloud calendar. It pops up an iCloud login that's not controlled by the the app. You log in there and it passes the app a token, and the token can be revoked by the user um, just like a password could. But it's it's a lot more granular and it's considered much more secure. And it also doesn't means the um the you don't have to maintain app specific passwords as a user. You just do these logins. And again, you can revoke them, or if a developer is found to go rogue or they get their key stolen. All those passwords, or all those tokens, rather, can be revoked at once, Not uh, which can't happen with um, app-specific passwords. Apple Medical Group, another little story. We were talking a bit ago uh, about some of the cool things that Apple's working on in terms of monitoring health, including Tim Cook apparently wearing a blood glucose monitor that's in development. And so it turns out there's uh, – we've got a story at Macworld.com about there's a kind of a little secret medical group working on really interesting projects at Apple, and that's exciting to hear, whether it's uh, watch-related or – Whatever, I'm glad that's going on. Yeah, and there was actually uh, an update to that that came out today that talked about, well, this is Tuesday, that came out on Tuesday uh, that I guess revealed a little more detail that Apple's working with a, with a startup called Health Gorilla. Oh, yeah, I saw that just this morning, right. Yep. Yeah, to uh, add diagnostic data to the iPhone that would include uh, 
blood work and other and other things like that. So uh, it's interesting direction that Apple's going with uh, with the with the iPhone on that stuff at that point. Agreed. I want to see more of it. One last uh, bit of sort of follow up or whatever is um, uh, because we we're talking about. Uh, Oh, I don't think we talked about the book that's coming out about the iPhone, did we? We haven't mentioned that. Um, there's a little bit of controversy about it um, because the author, some of the early early excerpt from the book that came out, had some things that had people howling about inaccuracy or meanness and so forth. So right. maybe we'll eventually do a book club and read it. I don't know. I'm I'm interested. Um, <laughs> some former Apple people were like, ah, you know, the, one of the things said that Phil Schiller has no real technical expertise and he's like kind of mom or dad and that and it's like, no, that's not Phil. No, that's not right. That would be incorrect. Um, there, but so related to that, though, we'll talk maybe more about the book when it's actually out. I don't know. We, we convened that when the, that fairly good biography of Steve Jobs came out a few years ago, not the Walter Isaacson one, but the one after it. Um, I'm blanking out of the name. That got uh, – uh, we did a, a book club and a few of us got on and talked about that. So maybe it will be worth it this summer. We'll, we'll do that. Uh, so Scott Forstall, however, who is one of the people who was instrumental in in the iPhone development, even though he made enemies and so forth, he's also uh, – there's a lot of people who have a lot of good things to say about how he helped uh, drive the product. And he did not become Steve Jobs 2.0. That was Tim Cook. Um, but he's being interviewed uh, as we record this tonight on a Tuesday night by John Markoff. Uh, Markoff's doing um, – formerly of the New York Times, retired – a veteran technology reporter who started at IDG in InfoWorld many, many years ago, 1980s. Uh, and John um, is interviewing uh, – it's a two parts, which is fascinating to me. So at the uh, at the um, Computer History Museum down in the Bay Area, the two parts are fascinating. because so I'm like, could they not get John uh, get Scott Forstall on stage with the other people who used to be on the team? I don't know. Uh, so Neaton, Ganatra, uh, Scott Hertz, and Hugo Fines are going to be talking in part one. And part two is Scott Forstall and John Markoff. So we don't know. I can't tell from this, and I haven't seen anything noted elsewhere, whether this will be um, taped and available later or you have to be there live. So I guess we'll we'll find out, right? But um, it, yeah. I, I, hope it, I hope it gets taped because that would be so fascinating. It's not being streamed, and I'm pretty sure that – I'm pretty sure that you know, some, you know, maybe some other website will cover it. I, I tried to get in. I got an email back saying you're 244th on the wait list. It's fascinating. So I hope it streams because so. I'm not streams. I hope it gets recorded because it's, you know, this kind of history. I've got a, a, a friend uh, who does this uh, computer history um, podcast and it's very interesting. He's gone through, or sort of, I'm sorry, internet history uh, podcast rather. Um, and uh, he's gone through and just, he tracks down people who were involved in the early days of, um, Mostly like the, um, I want to say more, uh, not the very early internet, like the pre-commercial internet, but mostly the last 20 years. We tracks down people who had um, significant roles in, in things like that. And I've been on the podcast a couple of times. I didn't have a significant role. I was just happened to be around. I was just there when things were happening. So I have to come and talk about stuff I know. But he gets really interesting people. And it's great because you want an oral history of how these things that changed the world happened you know you want to have that um a record somewhere so that's um internethistorypodcast.com so if you're you know if you're thinking hey i um i'm really interested in this forestall thing but maybe they don't air it there's i don't know what episode is he up to now. brian mccullough is the host um he is up to some enormous number of episodes now uh, he got some fe- uh, fellowship too so you can go hear that but he's got some anyway got some great people from the past not just me i'm not that interesting but i did talk about Amazon and all kinds of other stuff I worked on. 
in the early days. Uh, okay, so let's move it on. Sorry, we'll keep this going, folks. I swear. Uh, there was a story that came out today in the outline, and um, Roman, you mentioned this to me, and I, I took a quick look at it. It's theoutline.com. And uh, uh, there was a recording that got leaked um, from inside Apple, a briefing they did on leaking and why it's bad, and that got leaked. So I guess that's irony. <laughs> um, just like in the Trump administration, the le- briefings on leaks get leaked, and then they become stories. Uh, I don't find the story particularly interesting because it's more like, hey, did you not know how – which many people don't – how companies handle internal security, especially when they have multi-billion dollar product lines that – depend in part on people continuing to purchase them, even though future products are coming out. So um, I had a friend who worked at Apple, family friend worked there decades ago under uh, Jean-Louis Gasset. I forget if he worked for him or in that group. And Gasset had developed some uh, elaborate internal tracking. So they see, and this is common now, and I don't think it was even uncommon then, they would see different product names and features to different departments um, so that if anything leaked, they would know that codename X was coming from this department. So only apparently a hundred people were at that meeting on leaking. So someone leaked the recording from that meeting. <laughs> and thus it's going to be probably relatively easier to figure out which of the hundred people leaked the recording. Um, either that Roman, here's my conspiracy theory. Okay. <laughs> Maybe it was intentional because what's the best wait, thing. Wait, let me, let me adjust my tinfoil hat. Oh yeah. I'm sorry. Let's uh, right, folks sorry. change to frequency <laughs> five, 3.79 on my Mark Mark. Um, yeah, so potentially one way you uh, <laughs> fight leaking is you leak information strategically about leaking, and then people right. are suddenly – everyone Apple's like, oh my god, a secret leak meeting inside Apple. Let's pay attention to it. And so people inside Apple are now actually more educated about leaking without having had to attend this because they all go and they watch this. So yes. um, maybe it's maybe it's some kind of double, uh, double bluff scam. Right. Thing. I don't this know. This was meant – yeah, they meant to leak it Yeah, because – because they didn't have a meeting room big enough to put everyone in it. Yeah, so. I mean, there's some there's some tidbits in it. It's like they're talking about how things got like enclosures got stolen, and you know, Apple famously tries to break products up so that no one part or manufacturing partner can see the whole thing. Um, I've seen a prototype of the original iPod, which was this weird large box, and so the software developers worked on this strange box, and the hardware developers never saw the software. Um, so, which is explains a lot. Uh, so. Anyway, you can read the story. Um, uh, I uh, I'm don't find it that exciting unless you're really interested in like corporate espionage. I'm not even espionage, corporate leaking details. Um, so there. Uh, so moving on to something more interesting. Uh, we've um, one of the big things that came out of WWDC was uh, augmented reality support in um, for developers in iOS, and I think what's excited about it was. That, um, you know, A, that developers could almost immediately, we talked about that last week, make um, preview, like uh, demo versions of things or integrate it into existing stuff without a lot of effort, which is cool. It shows how viable it is immediately. Um, but the other is we're going to see, I've, I started to hear a lot of chatter here in the last uh, week, you know, a lot of sites and developers and uh, uh, folks from uh, uh, development companies talking about how existing stuff can just add AR features. And I was reading through the briefing um, that Apple did on uh, the uh, so detailed developer briefing, and they talked about also what features will be available to camera be, besides the AR stuff. It's going to be like AI and machine learning um, and other stuff that will be available to developers who are putting together camera or video apps. So it's not just that you'll be able to put an 
object in a field of view and have it track against real things. That's cool, right? But it'll also be they're going to release um, depth maps for still with your, if you have a two camera iPhone, the iPhone Seven Plus right now is the only one. Um, Apple will let developers access the depth map that gets um, derived, and not just for still images, but also for moving images. So. Um, one thing they showed in the demo is in a still image, if you have the depth map, you could have a figure in the foreground, you know, like a portrait and that figure could be in color and the background could be in black and white. Like that's just a trivial thing to do once you have that information, but think of what you can do with live video recording with active uh, access to depth information. It'd be super cool. Um, and developers will also be able to identify objects like shapes, squares, track objects, um, identify text. That's just going to be a, that's a built-in feature. Um, we've seen apps in the past that use augmented reality to do like live translate or um, enhance text and read it aloud. There's like a, was it a hundred dollar um, Kurzweil app that uh, is very, very well regarded that um, can do OCR and like anything it sees and just read it aloud and, or convert it to other tools. Um, so there's a bunch of stuff that's coming that that's much more, it's beyond just like, Hey, you'll be able to track Pokemon across a real space. It's like, no, no, that's cool. Gaming is fun, but, <laughs> um, you know, taking a picture and having it automatically label a bunch of stuff in it or mark things, you know, not just people. I mean, it does it'll do facial ID in terms of like identifying that there are faces, but, um, anyway, I, I think that's going to, we're going to see a lot of interesting, um, experimentation there that, so that, uh, camera apps won't just be about necessarily taking pictures. There'll still be those that are focused on photography, but there'll be others that will focus on, um, spatial photography, like taking pictures or doing stuff in a space. Yeah, I think it's interesting when when you think about, like, for instance, Microsoft, one day was showing off their future OSs. They, they were showing off a lot of VR type stuff and how VR will be integrated into their OS and how it can be used. Yeah. And, and Apple's showing a lot of, showed a lot of VR stuff too, but I think they see a more practical implementation with AR and maybe it's more uh also maybe it's not as maybe the overhead in executing AR isn't as intensive as executing VR so you know I want to say it's lower hanging fruit so that they can they can go after with AR so it's, it's interesting to see that the, the differences there and and uh the approach to implementing these new technologies technologies in the OSs and Apple's going one way. They're not totally ignoring VR, but they I think they feel like there's a more practical and maybe a more immediate uh immediate uh gain that they can get by using AR in, in the OS and in other applications than VR. I think you're so. absolutely right. It's clear there's got to be, I mean, the, it's clear that they've done a lot of thinking about it and, you know, they were talking about it, not openly, but much more directly, I think, than um, like how many opportunities there were before they had a product. And I think this is what's cool about it, their approach too, is I feel like uh, everything they're doing with um, exposing these AI or machine learning driven aspects and augmented reality libraries and, and machine learning um, uh, library importation that developers will be able to do. So the already trained recognition stuff, they can just sort of stick into apps without having to um, develop a framework to make that happen. All of that is really incredibly empowering for developers. And, you know, Apple, we've, we've talked about over years now, Apple 
was, let's say, not as focused on developers. Maybe it could have been. And um, a lot of developers were unhappy. And we're starting to see, like, turning the App Store, like, I don't think the App Store needs to be an editorial product necessarily uh, in the way that Apple's doing it. But, hey, it's something new and different, and it really favors developers. It favors focusing on apps and stories to tell, and it's all about, you know, stories, right? All these improvements, there's so many things that are really, you know, Apple will have its own apps or uses for them, I'm sure, but so much of what was announced really is going to make markets for new companies or enhancements to existing companies. So that's uh, that's good for developers and good for customers because we get all this interesting diversity and some of it's useful, some of it's for work, some of it's for fun, um, some of it's for our hobbies. Um, so moving on, I've got a few more things I want to let you talk about the MacBook Pro review, but very briefly, um, target display mode. Uh, this isn't follow-up, but I want to bring it up. Uh, you wrote about how the new iMacs do not support target display mode. So you can't, use your iMac as a monitor anymore, which is true with the older machines and not the newer ones. Um, I don't know how many people use that feature, but it was nice to have it when you needed it. Yeah, and it's not really uh, breaking news because I think the generation before didn't have it either. So, but I think it's, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, it was actually originally uh, covered by Apple Insider and I thought it was a good kind of public service announcement to let people know I that. I don't expect it, yeah. Yeah, don't expect it. Uh, so that's that's why I wanted to cover it again. It wasn't that, it wasn't a new, it's not a new thing, but I think it's it's one of those things that you kind of forget that it's there and then you think, oh, I can use it. And then you realize you <laughs> Suddenly, you try to use it and it doesn't work anymore, or something like that. So, yeah, I think yeah. people thought it might be coming back because I think it went away and there was a suspicion right. maybe it'll, oh, that was no mission or chipset issue or whatever. Right. And then I've got just one very brief item, which is I want to make sure listeners, you know, in case you think that it's just you, that your computers are failing on you. In my household, we had three computers I've got a laptop and uh, I've got a 12 inch MacBook from 2015, I've got a 2014 Mac Mini, and we have a 2011 MacBook Pro. That's my wife's. All three of them went haywire for unrelated reasons in the space of about a day. And I wound up having to, um, you can read an account soon, a Mac 911 column about how I brought back my MacBook from the edge of destruction, um, where it would not boot past a certain point. And I wound up reinstalling and doing all kinds of things until I finally was able to get to a migration assistant solution. Um, my Mac mini uh, is just something's weird with it. I had to swap out the drive recently. The new drive is so slow. Um, it's a hybrid drive, but it works totally erratically. Some days it's as fast as if it's SSD. Some days it is not. So I, I bit the bullet. I'm by, I bought a 27 inch iMac that's coming any day now. I'm just moving up, going to move up to 2017, uh, with a super fast machine with 32 gigs. I bought 32 gigs, man. Don't stop me. <laughs> I got a one terabyte fusion drive cause it's got 32 gigs of, uh, uh, SSD in it, and I got 32 gigs of uh, actual RAM as well. Uh, and then my wife's machine, she has a 500 gig drive, and I'd upgraded it already and um, started running out of space. You know, we take a lot of videos these days, you forget. So I just dropped in. This is a machine. took me maybe 10 minutes to swap out the hard drive, put a one terabyte drive. She had a 5,400 RPM drive. Now is a 7,200 RPM. Boom, we're in the future. So all of our home problems are solved. But it is not just you folks. Sometimes you think it's your computers are flipping out and it's um, all about you and, and nope, it's not you. It's uh, <laughs> it's machines. So, all right. So we got us a few minutes left, but so Roman MacBook pro review, uh, uh, we put up a new buyer's guide uh, to help people make decisions. What's the salient point from this new KB Lake based uh, set of laptops? You know, the performance, there's a, there's a performance boost. Of course it's maybe against the previous 
MacBook Pro, which had a Skylake processor. It's, you know, it's, I forget, is it like 20? Oh, it's a little, it's over 20% speed gains with that. So that's, it's a nice little boost. And so if you bought, if you bought a Skylake MacBook Pro in the past year, you, you're probably not too concerned about upgrading. I think one of the, the big upside is though, is the implementation of uh, HEVC in High Sierra. And Skylake does have some HEVC optimization in in its chip, but um, KB Lake has, I think, even more optimization for HEVC. Oh, oh I see. So that's going to help. That'll help both on creation and playback, or is it mostly a creation side uh, tool? It should help on both ends. Apple has said that they're going to be do, uh, releasing their pro apps with uh, with optimi- optimized uh, support for HEVC. So it should be on, on both ends. Great. So, you know, I haven't tried the beta on uh, the MacBook Pro. I, I don't know if the beta currently offers any optimization. I don't know if, I don't know if those drivers, I mean, those drivers are probably pretty early too. So I don't know if that would be fair to kind of say, you know, this is what you're going to get using High Sierra uh, right now. But uh, probably as we get closer to release, there's probably going to be, I would guess there's there would be, you know, a nice improvement. In it, but you know, this is we're talking HEVC, we're talking 4K video. Yeah, yeah, this is high end, 10 bit colors. So uh, right now, if you try to, you know, I tried running a 10 bit 4K video on the MacBook Pro, and it just chokes. It doesn't. You know, it's it, it it can't really handle. It. You can't even <laughs> open it with with QuickTime Player. QuickTime Player is like I I don't know what you're trying to do here. You know, you can't. You have to use uh the VLC, and it just it, you know there's a lot of tearing and a lot of it just won't even do the frame rates. It, it, it you can't even play. So I'm hoping that with uh, High Sierra with the driver impl- implementation, we'll see some improvement there. That's fascinating. There, I mean, it's interesting that Apple chose to introduce the. This, a variety of new hardware and advance of features, both um, in iOS 11 and in High Sierra, that they're going to need to uh, take advantage of. So that's interesting. Uh, but all in all, it sounds like you uh, you were pretty happy with these um, with this revision. This was a significant um, change because of KB Lake. Yeah, you know, I I like the MacBook Pro. I'm a fan of the MacBook Pro. I, I, you know, I'm the the KB Lake upgrade is nice. The graphic update is nice. The SSD, you know. Apple said that the SSD is 50% faster because they uh, did some tweaking to the controller, hardware controller. Mm-hmm. So the SSD is faster as well. So, the, so you know, it's not all just KB Lake. There's there's a, there's a faster SSD as well going on there. I'm not a big fan of the touch bar. Or not To say I'm not a fan is, is kind of harsh. I, I It's just kind of there for me. I don't really use the touch bar. So if I had a 15-inch laptop and no touch bar, I'd be okay with that. The thing, you know, the Apple offers the 13-inch laptops, uh, MacBook Pros without a touch bar, but they're not the high. They're not a high-performing, the high-performance chips that that I would like to have. So, and that keyboard, you know, Apple uses those. They're, they're using the butterfly mechanism keyboards on the MacBook Pro too, and. I just can't get used to that keyboard. It's just really, <laughs> I need more travel and a little, you know, the Apple external keyboards, you know, they're just within my tolerance level. I, I you know, they're not my favorites. I, I like a little more travel. I, I actually like Microsoft keyboards, but um, 
the Apple key external keyboards about within my tolerance, but yeah, yeah. that that the MacBook Pro and the MacBook keyboards, I just can't. I feel like I'm banging on glass. I feel like I'm typing on an iPad, kind of. And you know, there's a little more travel, but it just feels it's just not enough give for me. And I got the original 2015 MacBook, and I uh, I don't love it, but it's it's fine for me. But yeah, I think there's a threshold where it's. For some, I'm like I'm like just on the side where I'm like this is fine. I use it a lot. I only notice it sometimes when I'm just like, oh man, it's why is it so hard to type? I'm like, oh yeah, I'm on this keyboard. <laughs> That's why. But yeah, I, you know, I get reasonable performance out of it. It's not I don't go to this keyboard by choice, but I deal with it. But then you could be just like five percent like it less, and you're like, this is unacceptable. And it, I think there's a really fine range of acceptance. I don't think I found anybody. Maybe one person who really loved this kind of key or this keyboard. And I know the MacBook Pro again is better as we discussed. There's a little more travel. It's a slightly different, uh, it's a version two or maybe three at this point. I know there's a definitely a version two, uh, yeah. upgrade last, uh, in 2016 when they released it. But yeah, it's, um, so the last thing to mention about this though is, uh, you can't put 32 gigabytes in these laptops. It seems horrible. I know there's, you, you link, uh, in your review to a detailed discussion about, um, about why that is, but it still seems like, uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, Oh, Mac daddy is who you link to. And we'll, I'll put that yeah. in the show notes. Um, it just still seems like a disaster to release a computer for whatever reason that can't do, uh, 32 gigabytes today. Yeah. It, you know, it's a combination of the type around they're using and wanting to maintain a certain amount of yeah. temperature control. And, yeah, it it's it seems like an odd thing that Apple can't seem to engineer around for some reason or another. It's it's a, it's an odd problem and you know Apple downplays it. Apple says, you know, a very small portion of you really truly needs know, 32 gigabytes. The and, people who want it want it and I guess they're going to yeah. buy iMacs basically right now if they really still need a Mac. They'll get an yeah. iMac with 32 gigs. Should note the iMac, the 21.5 inch iMac, uh, iFixit discovered it's actually kind of upgradable in parts. They took it apart. They were stunned. And uh, Mac Sales is already, or Other World Computing, already selling a 32 gigabyte upgrade kit for the 21 and a half inch iMac. The 27 inch one that I bought is, from what I can tell, not upgradable, different design. And I just bought it all in one so Apple would support it. And I bought it with Apple Care. I know, folks, extended warranties. But 150 bucks for that model, and I'm thinking it's worth or 170 maybe it's worth it because anything goes wrong in year two or three, and um, it's going to instantly cost uh, the at least the minimum multi hundred dollar uh, all in one repair. So I've I always have stuff go wrong with um, anything with a monitor built in. I buy a warranty. If it doesn't have a monitor built in, I don't because I can fix everything else, and um, it's done me well. So I know people tell you don't buy extended warranties for Apple. I always buy one with something with a screen, iOS, Mac, iMac, and that's always paid off for me because I've always had multiple repairs that are covered by warranty. With the iMac, the 21-inch iMac, just to clarify, it's not that you can access the RAM oh, I'm sorry, in right. the back. It's, yeah, not, it's have, not intentionally user upgradable, but right. it, it can be upgraded by a user. Go to iFixit and watch their teardown if you want to see whether yeah. it's within your capability but it's doable where other models, it's simply uh, most other Macs these days have the RAM is soldered in or built into the motherboard. So you can't do it. What what Apple told me is you have to take it into the Genius and they'll right. upgrade it for you. So it, it's not that it's not fixed to the motherboard anymore. It's, you know, there's slots and you can put in RAM. It's just right. that getting, getting to it is not 
the easiest thing for a lot of people. Wait, wait. Apple will yeah. let you bring in third-party RAM and the Genius Bar will upgrade it for you? Or you mean you take it in there and they do the upgrade for Apple? Yeah, you take hardly. it in and they'll, they'll upgrade it. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, for, so Apple yeah. will still offer an upgrade path for these with its own RAM. Yes. Oh, yes. that's, that's, see, that's so, kind of different yes. too. That's interesting. Well, yeah, 27-inch one, I didn't know if that, I didn't think that path would exist. It sounds like it doesn't, so I, I got it. I'm, I'm like, I want a future-proof. I want my Mac to last five years. And I had a, my uh, 20, 2007 Mac Pro lasted for five or whatever it was called then, lasted for five years. And then I've had a, a couple Mac minis that have only lasted two or three. And um, I'm ready for something that I think is uh, a little more robust. Uh, Roman, thank you. Great to talk to you again. Thank you, Glad. Listeners, thank you for listening. Thank you for bearing with us through this episode. I hope the construction noise was occasional wasn't too bad having uh, a necessary staircase built so in case of fire we could actually leave our house uh, good thing I think um, this has been uh, episode 564 of the Macworld podcast for June 21st 2017 you can find us you know at macworld.com but also on facebook.com slash macworld you can email us podcast at macworld.com find us on twitter at macworld and find us here next week I'm Glenn Fleischman a senior contributor and I and Roman will be back next week